When I was a boy, uh, when I was a boy is a famous phrase at our house because my kids used to say, Dad, tell me a story of when you were a boy. So I would say, when I was a boy. And that was the beginning and the end of it. They didn't, didn't hear any. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The girls used to say I was the trickiest dad, but at their age it didn't take much to be called the, tr- the trickiest dad. But one of the real when I was a boy stories was uh, what I'm telling you now. When I was a boy, I think it was for my 10th birthday, which is in December, uh, I had been kind of dreaming about a new bicycle. And so either on or around my, my uh, got to have been 10th birthday or so, my parents loaded me up in their van and they drove me to the old Schwinn dealership there on 5th Street. It used to be across from what was in the uh, police uh, academy or office or whatever to buy a new bicycle. So I was thrilled and I was elated because I knew exactly what I was going to get. And uh, when I was a boy, the Stingrays, not, not mountain bikes and not, I don't know whatever the trick bikes are now or whatever, but anyway, the Stingrays, that was the rage, that was the bike to be had. So when we pulled up to the Schwinn dealership, you know what they've got in the front window, it's the Stingrays. And of course, that's what my heart set on. There's a row of shiny Stingrays right inside the store. So we walk in, I stop in front of the line of one of these is going to be mine, we're going to walk out with, right? And I'm looking over my choice of Stingrays and, uh, and my folks, they keep right on walking. And you know, it doesn't, I, I don't catch that at first. I'm looking at my bikes, trying to figure out which one. Do I want the smooth seat or do I want the seat that's kind of corrugated? You know, I don't know what you'd call that. Yeah, uh, so, uh, but I finally realized they didn't stop and look at these bikes with me. And they've gone down to the boring end of the store <laughs> where the big single speed bikes are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they're not coming to join me in front of my bike, so I go down and join them looking at these, and uh, my dad says, uh, we'll pick one of these out. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I am dying. All this, I've gone from heaven to hell, you know, in the walk <laughs> of that bike shop. And, you know, I'm almost, I'm 10 or so, so I don't want to cry in front of the store owner, right? But my world has just gone up in smoke. And I'm, if you knew my dad, my dad was my size and pretty firm guy. And, you know, you sort of didn't cross my dad was the thought at that stage of life. And so I realized this is the deal. So I swallow hard. And I picked the red bike because I was going to get a red Stingray. I picked the red bike. We load it up and go home. Now, for my folks, you know, this is a significant investment, you know, buying a new bicycle for Junior. And uh, I'm not thinking about that. When we get home, probably when my dad wasn't around, I'm sitting behind the couch, and my mom's within earshot. So I'm yelling to my mom from behind the couch where she can't see me, I hate that bike! <laughs> you know, You've ruined my life! The stingrays, and I've got this lousy bike, you know, oh gosh, you know, woe is me, help me. You know, those cries, they weren't even acknowledged. The the pathetic whining, there wasn't even, she didn't say a word. Wasn't budged, not a bit, you know. The truth is, though, a few days later, and for the next five five years or so that I'm riding that bike, I love my bike. 
uh, you know, when I was 10 or so, I was a lanky kid. And those stingrays, I was about almost too big for them already. So if I'd got a stingray, I would have enjoyed it for a short time, and I couldn't have ridden it the next year. It would have been too, too small. But that big red Schwinn, I rode everywhere. In fact, any place my friends with the stingrays went, I went too. And I went off the ramps we put on the sidewalks. We'd ride to the motorcycle ramps, the Hobo Jungle, if you guys are old enough to remember that, by the peach orchards near I-70 and the railroad tracks. I'd go down the hill on my bike and come up the other side just like them. Mark Haskell and I read to, uh, rode to Lake Shawnee and back, you know. I loved my bike, but I didn't start out feeling that way. What I really thought I wanted, my parents would not give me. They refused, and they gave me something else that they thought was better. On the front end of that, all I know is they've wrecked my life. This is what I really want, nothing else, and you give me this instead, what gives? But of course, my parents knew better than I did. They knew my size. They knew the size of the bike. Dad didn't explain any of this to me, by the way. Anyway, he just said, this is the way it is, junior. You know, but uh, there, it was their perspective. They, they knew what I wanted, but they didn't give me what, they, what I wanted because they held out for something better. I wanted this. They wouldn't give me that because they wanted something better for me. You know, that's the thing with parents. Uh, maybe not 100% of the time, but more often than not, they can see further down the road. They know what the difference is between something you want and something that will actually be good for you or will serve your best interest. The passage we're in this morning in Genesis 3 puts an exclamation point on this story and this thought. You guys know in the world that we live in, especially in the West, if you listen to music, if you listen to the radio, television, movies, whatever communication medium, especially, or if you talk to people at school or work, whatever, there's a version of God that's a distortion. Uh, it's a caricature of God that simply is not true. And it's this, that God's kind of a mean-spirited old guy up there who wants to withhold either good things from you or he doesn't want you to have fun or he doesn't want you to have too much fun. Do you know what I mean? That when you have fun or you enjoy good things, it's on the sly because God really wouldn't give you something that was fun or that was good. Well, it's a corruption, of course. It's a, it's a lie. And if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, hopefully you know that's a lie that God doesn't begrudge you good things or good times, much to the contrary, as we'll see here in a little bit. But that's the portrait of God I think most of us bring in to our view of God, even as Christians, because it's the view of the culture around us. It's the view of God that the culture expounds. It's that if you have fun, if you enjoy good things, it's not because God wanted that for you. It's because you're getting it on the sly. If you get what God wants, it's dull, it's drab, etc., that's simply not the case. We're going to be in Genesis 3, verses 20 through 24 this morning. Finish out that chapter as we look at this issue. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now... He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim 
and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We'll treat verses 20 and 21 briefly and then spend the remainder of our time on verses 22 to 24. Verse 20 is a little ironic. Remember that we've just read the passage of the fall, the story of the fall, and then God comes in and and rightly or appropriately speaks the judgments against Satan and Eve and Adam. And then we suddenly flip the switch and we're here at verse 20. And remember, the world has gone from life and health and everything's good to death. That's what's just happened. And yet Adam says... It's as if reality goes right over his head. It's maybe from God's perspective, it's intentional irony. God calls his, or Adam calls his wife Eve, uh, life. They've just gone from life to death, but he calls his wife's name life because, of course, she becomes the mother of all those who live on the earth. But at this point, it's ironic because Adam and Eve aren't enjoying life now. They're enjoying, as it were, death. Eve does become the mother of all living. Verse 21, we've already looked at this, and so I'm just going to reiterate what uh, we spoke of earlier a few weeks back, and it's this. You remember that originally God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they apparently met face to face. The person of Christ took on some form, as we see later in Genesis, and He speaks to Adam and Eve. They know the sound of Him in the garden. But after the fall, all that changes, and they hide. And their first instinct was to hide and to cover up. And we talked about that in relation to sin and shame. We, we know our deficiency or when we do wrong, our first instinct is to hide in the darkness. And if you remember, they put together leaves to cover physically their nakedness, to cover what was their moral nakedness now, their moral deficiency. And so when God looks at them, He says, your covering is inadequate. You need something substantial, something that will adequately cover your shame. And so the text doesn't say, but when it says God gave them the skins of animals, we understand God slayed animals, took the skins of those animals to give them an adequate physical covering for their sin. And of course, this was a picture of the sacrificial system you see through the age of the patriarchs. In fact, it starts in the next chapter. And then you see institutionalized in the law of Moses all of which pointed to the fact that one day Christ would hang on a cross, the ultimate covering for sin and shame and die for our sins. So Adam and Eve came up with a kind of covering for sin and shame that God just says that won't cut it, so I'll give you what you need. And ultimately, of course, that would be Christ's provision on the cross. In verse uh, 22 through 24, starting at verse 22, two things here. God says the man has become like one of us, And the second thing is there, he knows good and evil. And if you remember in the creation accounts, Adam and Eve are already like God, right? Because God says we're going to create something, someone in our own image, someone like us. And so Adam and Eve are already like God. They're the rulers of the earth. God's the ruler of the universe. He makes sub-rulers here, Adam and Eve. They were a unity and plurality. You remember we talked about this. You see the Trinity throughout the Bible. When God makes man in His image, He makes a man and a woman. And together, these diverse people create one new unity, one new personage, if you will, also reflecting God. And then the last was they were spiritual beings like God. That is, animals couldn't interact with God intelligently. Only Adam and Eve could. So they were already like God. The reason they're like God now, though... 
is what Satan said would happen. Do you remember the temptation? If you eat from this tree, you'll be like God. And God says that much, at least, of the temptation was true. They're like God. Why? Because they know good and evil. They know good and evil. The Hebrew word for know here is the same Hebrew word that's used in the next chapter, verse 1, when Adam knows Eve and produces children. The word here means intimate knowledge or knowledge by experience. God says now, Adam and Eve know good and evil. They have a personal connection to good and evil. The the trouble with this is, unlike God, who knows good and evil, their knowledge comes by experience because they chose evil. They know evil now because they chose evil. They know what's morally good now because they left what was morally good. So they have a knowledge now, which Satan said they would, and which God acknowledges they do, but Satan didn't tell them what the cost of that knowledge would be, that it would be death, that it would be they would be on the wrong side of the divide between good and evil. So God says they know good and evil, but it's because they chose evil instead of choosing the good. You remember originally when God told them to avoid the tree of knowledge. On one hand, we could say it was a test. Remember that they have no prohibition in all of creation except one, the tree of knowledge. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you'll die. So anything and everything on the planet are open to their use. They can do whatever they want, eat whatever they want, go wherever they want. There's only one prohibition. In that sense, the prohibition of the tree was a test. Will they obey? But it was more than a test because their obedience would guarantee what was in their own best interest. That is, God told Adam, if you eat, dying you'll die. So it was more than a test, was a test, but it was more than that. To not eat from the tree, to obey God, would guarantee their own future. It was for their own best interest that they not eat from that tree. The knowledge they gained made them like God, but the cost of that knowledge was death. Look at verses 22 and 23. This is kind of the crux. God speaking here says... He might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. When God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, it was for their good. But there's another tree, Genesis 2.9 says, in the midst of the garden, there's two trees. One's the tree of knowledge, one's the tree of life. Well, they ate from the tree that was prohibited, the tree of knowledge, and they died. And God says now, He might stretch out His hand. And I'm assuming God, who's omniscient and knows Adam and Eve because He made them, is the text doesn't say this, but we're assuming. God says they're going to want to eat from this tree. There's two special trees. All the trees, if you remember, are delightful to look at. They're good to eat, but there's two special trees in the middle. They've eaten from one already, the one that was prohibited. They're going to want to eat from the other as well. So God, if you will, anticipates what they're going to want to do. When he said don't eat from the tree of knowledge, it wasn't to keep them from something bad, or excuse me, it wasn't to keep them from something good, but it was to preserve them. The same mentality goes now related to the tree of life. God says, 
If they eat from this tree now, the tree of life, the implication is they won't be able to be saved. That is, they'll live forever in the state they're in, fallen from God, cut off from God and His mercy. They would be like Satan and the angels who aren't redeemed. So when God says to Himself, He might reach out, He might take and eat, the inference there isn't that God's keeping Adam and Eve from something that's good. It's that he's keeping him from something that will harm him further. If they eat from this tree now, it won't be to their good. It will curse them to death forever. They're dead now. If they eat the tree of life, this will be their state forever. Verse 23 and 24 say, with that presupposition, God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Uh, Verse 24, he drove the man out. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And listen to these phrases. God sent him out, drove them out, stationed an angel with a flaming sword, guarding the tree of life. If you're on Adam and Eve's side of this statement, uh, put yourself in their shoes. What does that look like or feel like? You've been in the garden. Things have been good. Yes, you made a little mistake. Things aren't what they used to be. But now all of a sudden, God's pushing you out of this special garden. All the earth's good, but the garden's even better. God's pushing you out. He's driving you out. And here is this holy angel with this flaming sword standing now in the garden that was your special home. And God says, put up a do not enter sign. What would that feel like if you're Adam and Eve? Have you seen uh, Gustav Dory's uh, print of this? Uh, uh, assuming he was German, but anyway, he did lots of prints of biblical passages and themes. And if you see it, you can do a search online. Adam and Eve are walking out of the garden. Their heads are down. The animals on the sides are kind of cringing. And the angel standing there at the front with the sword. And if you just saw the picture, and I don't, I don't think this was Dory's intent, it's like those poor guys, look at them. You know, I feel sorry for them. Because their heads are down, you know, their dappers are down. Life's not good anymore. If you're Adam and Eve, driven out, sent out, flaming swords and guarding the tree of life, could all sound very negative, could sound harsh, punitive. God doesn't like me anymore. He won't let me in the garden anymore. I just did that little thing and now I'm punished forever. I can never come back in. You see what I mean? It could all sound punitive as if God's just the angry guy in the sky And you cross the line, so now he's going to punish you good. I think that's what the world would say. And if you're Adam and Eve, maybe that's what you're thinking. But flip that on its head. Put yourself in God's perspective. God's looking at Adam and Eve, creatures he made in his own image to have fellowship with. And they've eaten from the tree of knowledge. They've sinned, so now they're spiritually dead, cut off from him. And you know, as God, that if they eat from that other tree... They'll live in that disconnected, spiritually dead state forever, past redemption. When you drive them out, when you push them out, when you put the guard at the gate, what are you thinking? You're preserving them. You're doing what's in their best interest. You're not giving them either what they want or what you know they'll want in the future. But the reason is because you know if they get what they want, it will kill them forever. From God's perspective, this is entirely benevolent. There might be some punishment aspect here. There might be some righteous sense, which we already saw the judgments. 
in which God says you can't enjoy this place anymore. But the primary thing, the rationale God gives here is if they eat like this, they'll live forever as they are. And that's the issue. So from Adam and Eve's perspective, being driven out of the garden could look punitive. God's mad at me. God doesn't want me to have any fun. I can't get back. From God's perspective, it is, I'm saving your life. I'm preserving you so you can get redemption later. And remember, too, that God's already said, even in the judgment that one of Eve's descendants will come and will crush Satan's head. And we know from the rest of the story in the Scriptures that the crushing of Satan's head requires God the Son to become a man, to die on a cross for our sins. In other words, God's love for Adam and Eve is fully proven already because a God who can't lie has promised them redemption. And God who can't lie already knows that the cost of their redemption is His own life, His own Son. So there's no doubt about God's intention towards Adam and Eve, whether they can see His benevolence at the time or not. God knows that He intends only good for them. And we know reading the text because we know the rest of the story. That's all God means here. It's for their good. God's committed to their good at the cost of His Son already. So when He drives them out of the garden, it's not in conflict with His commitment to bless them and to save them. It's part of the same plan. It was God's mercy that drove Adam and Eve from the garden. It was kindness that kept them from what they wanted, and it was His goodness that spared them what they wanted so He could give them something better. You know, like I did as a 10-year-old, sometimes there are things in your life that you feel like you've got to have them or you'll die. It might not be a a red bicycle or, depending on your age, it might be a red bicycle. But as you grow or depending on what's going on in your life, it could be a million and one things. It could be better social standing. It could be children. It could be getting rid of children. It could be a better job, more money, health. I mean, go through the list. Whatever it is, all of us face times in life where there's some object that we think, if only I could have that, life would be good. Lord, if you really loved me, you would give me that. Lord, I'll never ask for anything else if you'll just give in this time and give me that one thing I want. And you know, the truth is probably more often than not, the thing we think we've got to have is the thing that would kill us if we got it, the thing that would harm us. So we pray about it oftentimes, and we wait, and God doesn't give it to us. And the question rises in our mind, what gives? Then you ask yourself, is God, is He angry at you? Is He a miser? Is He stingy? Is He a sadist? He just wants to see you squirm? From your perspective on earth, looking up at heaven, what goes through your mind, Lord? You know, I just want that red bike. I just want whatever, the job, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the marriage, the kids the brighter car, the bigger house, whatever whatever it is. And God doesn't give it. Is He a miser? Does He not what, want what's in your best interest? Or is He committed to your welfare and what's in your best interest? Is He keeping you from something that might be good, might not be good, for something better? Of course, you know, you know the answer. He's keeping us typically for something better. 
Adam and Eve got what they wanted initially, and it killed them. They got what they wanted. They didn't know it was going to kill them, but it did. God typically spares us from those things that we think at the time we've got to have because He knows they're not in our best interest. And just think about this for just a little bit. I don't know if there's anything in your life right now that's like this. If there isn't, there will be in the future. And you'll just feel like death means not getting that one thing or not being relieved from this one burden. And you pray and God doesn't give you the red bike. It's not because He doesn't want to give you a red bike. It's because He has something better or He knows what you're after really is not in the long run in your best interest. Ultimately, Adam and Eve do get the tree of life and their kids do too. And we'll see this in just a minute. But, you know, if you want life today and that's what God kept them from, the tree of life, they'd live forever, so He kept them from the tree of life in this passage. If you want life today, you don't have to worry about uh, anti-aging creams or, uh, I don't know, whatever the vitamin pills are you can take. You don't have to search for the Holy Grail. Uh, There's a movie, really tough to figure out movie about the tree of life. We saw the fountain, I think, was the name. Really hard to uh, understand. You don't have to search for the tree of life. If you want life today, all you have to do is trust Christ. Listen to just a few words Jesus says in John's Gospel. John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you want life today, that's what Adam and Eve were kept from. If you want life today, get Christ. Or John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. You want life? Get Christ. By the way, John 10, 10, uh, Jesus says in contrast, the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. And sometimes the things that you're grasping on your own are things the enemy would love to give you. And he'll help you get there. And he'll put them in front of your face so you can see them and desire them because he wants you to have them. Because he brings death and destruction with everything he gives. By the way, sometimes when you grab these things, excuse me, when you grab the red bike that you think you've got to have or when you grab the tree of life that you think you've got to have, Sometimes God will let you do that. Not because it's in your best interest short term, but because He wants you to know that sometimes you getting your own way is not in your best interest. And haven't most of us at some time grabbed something we knew, God said, that's not for you, that's not my best. You grabbed it, you got it, and later you regretted it. And the lesson out of that is, I can trust God with what He withholds as well as with what He gives. Don't grab what God's keeping from you. Don't try and lay hold of the things you know between you and the Lord. God's saying that's not for you or it's not for you now. John 6, 51, Jesus said there, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh, that is crucifixion. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. Do you want life today? It's what God kept Adam and Eve from, the tree of life. If you want life today, Jesus says, you've got me. If you've got Christ, you've got life. You don't have to worry about trees or anything else. By the way, the other thing that they were being kept from initially, the tree of knowledge. If you want knowledge today, 
that's found in the same place you find life today. You remember those trees in the garden were side by side in the middle of the garden. Life and knowledge were in the same place. And guess what today? Life and knowledge are in the same place. So you read Paul in Colossians 2, 2. He talks about a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want knowledge today, don't worry about the tree. Knowledge and wisdom are in Christ just as life is in Christ. You know, if you look back in history, most of the great uh, thinkers, at least from Christ on, and scientists were Christians. Read about the lives of people like Newton. They believed that in their study of science, they were seeing the glories of God. They didn't see any contradiction between knowledge and truth or between knowledge, truth, and God. They were all wrapped up in the same place in the same person. If you want life today, get Christ. If you want knowledge today and wisdom today, get Christ. They're in the same place. They have the same source. Beyond saying that, you remember we've said Genesis is this, provides the seeds of all these great themes that go throughout the rest of the Bible, and this is no exception. That's why taking, uh, it's taken so long to go through three chapters. If you look at the end of the story, though, Revelation 21.6, thinking about this theme of life, Jesus says there, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Jesus says, if you want life here in this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, He says there's a spring. And you can drink from it all the time. I don't know if you guys have ever drunk from a freshwater spring. Uh, cool water that comes out of the ground. You know, you don't do anything to work at it. It just comes out of the ground. There it is. It's free. You can drink it up. When I lived in uh, Montana with my brother, that was our source of water. We'd back up to a freshwater spring and we'd take the water. There was no meter. There was no bill. It was free. Well, Jesus says that here. There's a spring of water of life and you can have as much as you want and there's no cost. Water of life without cost. He goes on in 22.1 of Revelation, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. If a spring's not enough for you, try a river. So out of the throne of God and the Lamb comes a river of life. So do you want a, a lot of life? You can jump and swim and play in the river of life. If you want life, it's in Christ, but these same things carry on right on to the end of the Bible. There's a spring of water. There's a river of water, and it's all life. Do you get the theme? God didn't keep them from life in Genesis 3. He preserved them for life so that He could pour life out all over for them so they can drink life, they can swim in life. He's not holding back life from them. He preserved them to give them, frankly, more than they can ever use. Nothing stingy here. And by the way, that same tree comes up again, of course, here in Revelation 22.2. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's the tree of life. He didn't keep it from them. He preserved it for them. And there it is at the end of the story. Again, the tree of life there. He's giving it to them with the water of life and the spring of life. The one who is life is giving life over and over multiplied times, more than they could ever contain, more than you and I could contain. When God kept Adam and Eve from the tree of life, it wasn't to curse them, it was to 
bless them. And when God keeps you and I from those things in life, the red bicycles or whatever you think of at the time, it's not to curse us. It's to bless us. It's to bless us. I might say, too, if, if you go away thinking that uh, God's going to give you everything in this life that you want, uh, I am definitely not saying that. Uh, one good test of a teaching from the Scriptures is to ask yourself how it plays in Peoria or how it plays in Africa, India, China, Korea, etc. Think of this. <clears throat> You could be born in poverty in Korea, grow up in poverty, become a Christian, and die a martyr in poverty in Korea today. And Christians are doing just that. And and actually all over the world, the third world especially, right? God has preserved life for them, but guess what? They're not experiencing a lot of it here, are they? And there may be things that you crave and that you really want and you really want them in this life that you're not going to get in this life. You know what I'm saying? Uh, One, this life, it's not big enough and it's not long enough for God to give us the things He wants to bless us with. Uh, Our life here is, is a shell that's too small to accept all the good things God wants to pour in. So all of us are going to have some things that we would like to have on this earth, in this world, and we're not going to have them. And it's not because God's a miser. And it's not because He's saying no, no, no to the things that you'd like. It's because He's saying yes, yes, yes to something later, something bigger, something better. And because obviously there are other purposes that are related to our living and dying on this earth. Things bigger than our desires. And most of the time our desires are misguided anyway. So it doesn't mean, in saying any of this, when we say God's saying no to some things to give us something better, this is bigger than our lifetime here. Oftentimes it means we're not going to have something on this earth ever. But it's not that God's withholding something good. We get everything He has to give later. Some of the things we get to enjoy in this life, but certainly not everything. And if, if we say otherwise, if it's not true for the Christians in Korea or China, it's not true, biblically. It's not ultimately true. So we need to be careful with our thoughts. It doesn't necessarily mean God's going to give us that thing that we want five years from now. It may be eternity in heaven before you see the, the fruit of the things of your desires that you'd like. So when you're desiring the big red bike or the, or the red... Uh, Stingray, or the house, or the car, or whatever, and God doesn't give it. Remember this, what God causes or allows in your life, what God gives you or withholds from you, what God requires from you or intends for you, is born of His mercy, His kindness, and His grace. Let me close with Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Father, the crucifixion of your son, the ultimate covering for our sin and death, is the greatest testimony to your commitment to us and to our good. 
Lord, it is the testament written in blood that can never be gotten around, that your love for us moved you to the death of your Son to redeem us back. Father, help us to enlarge our minds to grasp a little bit of your goodness and your grace. Help us not to fall for the lies of the enemy when he paints you as some miser in heaven keeping us from fun. God, help us to give you trust in all the areas of life we're challenged by. Help us to remember that if you gave us Christ, if you gave up Christ for us, you're not withholding any good thing from us. Father, thanks that your love for us is eternal, that life is a river we'll swim in in the future, all proceeding from you. Father, give us grace and faith to trust you here and now for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.